You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Have you had a chance to check out the Arsenal Pass vlog for Worlds 2022 yet, Brendan? I did. It was very nice. So do you th- I have a question for you, though. Do you, would you say it's an upgrade or a downgrade from the f- PT number two vlog? Oh, it's a massive upgrade. Look at look at all the, the, the editing that's gone into that. Our editor Dave put a ton of time and effort into that to make it look so polished. But my actual thing I want to see is, did you watch the whole video? Did you get the Dante Del Fico Easter egg at the very end of the video? Uh, I don't think so, actually. What was the Dante oh, Del Fico? Oh, you probably, you probably can't it. tell me. Can I won't you? spoil it. You yeah. have to go back and watch. So, yes, the Arsenal Pass vlog for the World Championship 2022 is up on the YouTube channel. Go and check it out. Give us a big like uh, and uh, and a comment let us know what you like about it help us out push this video up to some big numbers uh it's a, it's a really great video i think and um features definitely me and brendan up to some antics so welcome back to everyone to episode 87 of arsenal pass i almost said 86 i just feel like every week there's just you know it's another episode it's crazy how that works <laughs> brendan this week we're doing a bit of some diving into something that we actually do a lot of and play a lot of in this game, but we haven't really broken down before, and that's combo decks. It's something that basically at every event we've ever played, we've played some form of a combo deck or some iteration of a combo deck, but I don't think we've ever really broken it down, how to build these, how to play them, and then taken a look back at what combo decks are in Flesh and Blood. I actually didn't realize that until I read through the notes, and I was like, huh, I guess every single time it has been a combo deck the the least of which being was pt number two but we still took the the so sort of meta deck in the form of briar and sort of added a bit of a combo into it yeah we're going to talk about that this idea of combo is not a you can't package it up into this neat little thing like you can other games and i think that's why we haven't talked about it as much archetypes in flesh and blood are really interesting they don't form a lot of traditional archetypes you see in some other card games because of the uniqueness of the resource system because of the uniqueness of what cards do in your deck and the fact that you play cycle to cycle which is is different to a lot of games you know think magic the gathering for instance where it's about card advantage it's about so a lot of combo decks can really narrow down to over the course of a game which is is a lot different in flesh and blood but we're going to dive into all those good things first of all brennan i want to ask you about your week in flesh and blood i know it is kind of the off season have you been playing any flesh and blood what's it look like for you it has been the off season for me. I've been really ramping up my training for uh, this marathon. Oh. Yeah, no, no, Marvel Snap. There is a new season tomorrow. I did hit infinite <laughs> once again uh, this season. Uh, no, I play that game very casually. No, I've been um, so I've been running a lot. Uh, I'm up to like about uh, six to ten miles pretty much every single day. I'll maybe take two days off and do like speed work on those days, but that's quite a big difference for me. Where I was like a month ago, a month and a half ago, I was at around like three miles being the most i could do before i just like vomited or something so uh made a lot of progress so far and it's taken up quite a bit of time to be honest because it's pretty hard on my body to um ramp up the the mileage that much and it's definitely not recommended but it's absolutely necessary if i'm going to be prepared in the short amount of time we've allotted yeah crazy i haven't been well i've been doing a little bit running but not not to that degree uh training but have been playing some flesh and blood as well so have played a few i'm on this i guess streak of armories at the moment just getting to some local armories playing it's been awesome 
Hello Arsenal past listeners, just a small addendum to this next bit. We're about to talk about Dash and an event that happened in Hong Kong. I accidentally label this as an event that happened in Singapore. Please note this is the PTI and Battle Hardened event that happened in Hong Kong weekend before last that we are discussing. Singapore has come out this weekend. Awesome. Uh, I've been playing a lot of Dash, so planning to do actually a, a deck tech for the Dash build I've been playing. Just still tweaking, playing around, trying to learn stuff. I think Dash is one of the most interesting heroes in this current format because of the amount of different ways that you can build the hero. I saw that uh, Matt Rogers had posted up a, a Dash sort of guide on uh, his Fab with Matt sort of series and very different to how I'm looking at Dash at the moment. I think there's so many different ways you can look at it. And Dash had some more success this past weekend uh in singapore i believe it was a dash final in the pti event on the sunday in singapore after the battle hardened and uh yeah dash really putting up some numbers i actually have the the top eight from that i think i will find that once we get into the news brendan but um yeah good week in, in flesh and blood why don't we actually just speaking of jump straight into the news because there's a pretty big one on the uh, agenda here and that's that we know what the next flesh and blood set is yesterday as we record lss and fabtcg.com did drop the release date and the kind of banner you know this this banner of what the next set is called outsiders brendan we're visiting the mm. pits it's coming out on march 24th pre-release is going to be march 17th and i want to know just kind of initial take on seeing that image you know what is that character is it a is it a mechanologist well you know what what are we looking at here i think it's pretty clear that after the success that magic the gathering had with their 40k release we now have flesh and blood Warhammer <laughs> 40k coming out <laughs> no is it a is it a mechanologist it, probably right well, we haven't had a new mech in a long time uh, my question really is is it like a mech slash something right another dual one of these class. dual classes mm-hmm. um the pits is a particularly cool era uh, area i feel like um Especially Lore Rise takes us back to like a more of a dark setting. I feel like we've been, you know, sort of a, a bit of happier settings. I mean, I guess Uprising, there was like this, like the Emperor died or whatever. But before that, you know, we're in Everfast. We're all having a good time. So we're back to the pits, back to um, sort of the gritty flesh and blood that, you know, I find a bit more entertaining, to be honest. Yeah, P- Pits is certainly very interesting. Obviously, we know already Cav Dane, Azalea, two members of the pits, uh, Arachne. So. You might already think, okay, well, are we going to see more assassin support? That's kind of the one, the first thing that kind of pops to my mind. You know, if I had to throw out classes, I thought we were going to see based on this. Uh, I've heard that this is a four hero set. Uh, I saw this on Twitter. I believe it came from from Deru because of the Ultra Pro. uh, Sorry, Uh, Dragon Shields. Not Ultra Pro. Yeah, the sleeves. Dragon Shield pre-order for sleeves. It looks like there's four heroes you can pre-order, which would say that it's probably four new heroes as well. So not a revisit. Because I thought maybe we'd, the way James White talked at, the world championships during the panel discussion it sounded like azalea could potentially be available for some reason because but what it sounds like it is is that skirmish season six has young cold for heroes as prizes from arcane rising because james specifically said skirmish season six has azalea cold foil promo i would extrapolate it to mean that we get cold for young heroes for skirmish season six from arcane rising we know we've had them for welcome to wraith next off the block would make sense that it would be arcane rising which is super cool because i really want to get my hands on uh this you know this yeah. kano that everyone got it it's the <laughs> was it one of the callings that everyone got or u.s nationals yeah. so one of the early callings i believe it's u.s nationals uh, this year this was past it? One. yeah it was oh this the, year the yeah, that, that's why because yeah. i missed it yeah, yeah you went there that's why you don't have one so <laughs> hopefully we can get one of course you know uh, yeah i called for young this right like t- t- you know two of my favorite heroes in this game in that set so uh looking forward to that but yeah i you know if i was to think a ranger, a 
mechanologist based on this sort of imagery assassin maybe we get merchant maybe this crosses over i'd be really interested i, I think i feel like with the way also that some of the, the talk was during the alice's panel they talked a lot about or alluded to shadow i felt and especially brute mm. and levia and i'm like okay does that is that a supplemental thing or is that something we might see revisited here i mean the pits shadow heroes could we see that talent revisited already yeah super interesting we can speculate till the cows come home but the other thing i want to speculate a little bit on from a a competitive play standpoint is that with the last two well uprising and yeah uprising and tales of aria we saw these world premiere events happen for these draftable limited play sets so will we see this again will we see a calling circuit happen on that would be march 10th the week before the pre-release of outsiders alongside so world premieres plus callings i think we probably mm. will that seems like alice's were pretty keen to keep this world uh, premiere sort of events happening and that would mean callings will it be team blitz again don't know maybe it'll be classic instructor because of course we don't have a lot of events with this is the other thing we don't have a lot of events with uprising this is a very quick turnaround of course sorry uprising. dynasty dynasty has just released we've had dynasty for now on what three weeks and we're going to get it for the proquest season but are we actually going to get it for any you know high competitive events beyond that so calling so this looks like a good opportunity to have dynasty or callings i'm sure there might be a, a one or two other callings as well and then of course we get outsiders so it looks like outsiders are gonna be pre pt1 so pt1 if i had to speculate right now looks like late april i would think yeah all coming together i'm gen i'm genuinely hoping for another calling circuit akin to uh the tales of aria limited calling series that we had i hope that we have another one of those like i know that yeah that was just a really awesome time in flesh and blood for me and i hope that they bring it back uh it it was yeah not only because it was limited but just because we had those callings like in just in such a compact time it was a cool experience right and i felt like a lot of people that were at least based in this region um got to experience uh, i don't know playing a lot of high level events right that the the kind of events that lead you to the pro tour and world championships i hope they expand that right to the rest of the world but selfishly here in the u.s i i I thought that that series of events was a massive success at least for me as a player and i would really like to see it again uh potentially with some dynasty yeah uh or with dynasty limited be it'd be the outsiders right yeah with limited it'd be the outsiders but i would like maybe they could make it so that a couple of them were in dynasty as well it just feels like with dynasty yeah i would like to see some you know high level competitive events like with dynasty i know we've had you know a couple of tournaments here in the past three weeks but would cool be cool to see a calling circuit that was classic constructed focused as well i'm with you in the sense that limited events are really cool so maybe we could split that up in between um you know series of three or four callings yeah this isn't what we're here to talk about today but i do want to while we're here let's just let's just talk about it you know what would you like to see i mean i would love to see us have a uprising calling season accessible to the world so at least one in europe at least one in apac at least one in north america before we even get to outsiders so proquest season mm-hmm. one to two callings in, in most regions would be ideal class constructed i think we've obviously seen these battle hardens be blitz class constructed be great on the back of the proquest season we head into outsiders we head into maybe one or two limited callings and then the pro tour be great to see them back end like we saw with they do with, they did this with singapore into pt lil but it Mm-hmm. wasn't accessible for everyone i'd love to see them do at least two or three callings in different regions to give people the opportunity to travel or you know just one in the same city the weekend before what you know great great opportunity to or the even the weekend after 
um, and have that be outsiders limited or it depends what the format of the PT is, right? You could speculate about that. Is it going to be a class constructed only? Is it going to be half drafts, half class constructed? I know what you would prefer, Brendan. I think we sit on opposite sides there. I would love a 50-50. I want to see draft. I want to play more limited, uh, but we shall see. But yeah, it, it looks like the only thing we're missing now is some announcements from LSS around <laughs> timelines and when events yeah. are actually taking place because we can speculate as much as we want but until I feel like i've been in that situation before as well i, I oh, do yeah? hope that they announce them soon yeah 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 it's like the story of my life in this game um i hope they announce them soon so that we can make travel plans and get get a like uh have ample preparation for some of these things because it is tough um even traveling locally or relatively locally like for you hayden maybe going back to new zealand for callings oh, yeah. like if we i want at least come on like one to two months of notice and then yeah we can absolutely make it happen and that'd be great but if it's uh if we're boarding on that like three to four weeks it's gonna be it's gonna be tough uh it, it needs to be yeah if if we don't see announcements before prior to christmas it's going to be there's two things on my wish list prior to christmas it's an elo update and a uh, an announcement uh, of q1 events minimum q1 events up till pt1 i think is is what we what we need so elo yeah. is so funny right now it's all I, I keep saying that on twitter it's like everybody's waiting for the elo updates um i wonder if they're going to tweak the uh like the back end system at all to be a bit automated. more yeah automated automated dynamic uh you know i think it is it purely manual at this point because they have to like verify yeah to like verify and make sure it's not messed up that's that's got to be a nightmare of a task it's at least semi-manual they might have scripts they can run but i think at least some of it is is semi-manual so (laughs) but i I would like to see uh, what my limited elo rating is ideally anyway brendan outsiders coming in march very quick between sets but actually when you think about it it's not that quick it's just because we don't have a competitive season we have progress season but you know november december post the 2022 post-release of Dynasty. There's there's nothing right apart from these these two mm-hmm. three battle hardens we've had. Uh, did to- talk about the top of the show that our World Championship 2022 vlog is up. Please go check it out. Give us that support. Really appreciate it. it helps us get the video out to more people with the, the likes and comments. Um, PT1 in 2023. We just talked about this. So we know it's North America that has been announced as to where it's going to be in date. Yet we're still waiting. Progress Season Three does start on uh, the 14th of January. Battle Hard in Singapore happened over the weekend. Congratulations to uh, the winners from that. Also a PTI event on the Sunday. I didn't actually catch the results for the Blitz section, so the Battle Hard itself, but I saw the PTI event, or the, the top eight, because it was shared in one of the group chats I was in, and it was, I just, I said I'd get this for you, Brennan. So it was a five, three dash, Reiner, an Icelander, a Dramai, and a Briar. That's a pretty diverse top eight. It's, it's really cool diverse, to see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did end up being an all dash finals. There were two, two players on opposite sides of the bracket. I believe it was uh, Calvin Law and... Alan Lau, two names that we're seeing a lot, even at the PT as well. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure who took it out in the end. I know it was Dash, though. That's all I know. Uh, I'm sure Calvin Law is also number one XP in the world as well. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, last shout-out goes to Metal Fab tokens. Arsenal Pass resource tokens that you might have seen are still up and available on metalfabtokens.com. Brendan, should we head to the command and cookout section? Let's do it. All right, we've got a great question here from Fancy that comes from the Arsenal Pass Discord. If you do want to get your questions, Fancy seems to pop up a lot. You've got a few questions for us, Fancy. Uh, if you do want to get your questions in, you can email them to us at arsenalpassfab at gmail.com. You can drop them in the YouTube comments below. You can DM us, tweet at us, however you want to get them to us. Fancy asks, what is the point of yellow pitch cards, Brendan? doesn't say actually specifically Brendan, but I'm, I'm also throwing the question to you first. What is the point of yellow pitch cards? Uh, to fill booster packs. 
Um, but yeah, so we've talked about this in Arsenal Pass before. It's a weird design space. Uh, there are some areas where they make sense, right? There's things like Luminaris that uh, reward you for putting yellow cards in your deck. Outside of that, I find... Outside of the majestic slots and you know higher rarity slots, I find that yellows are often utilized when the cards are pretty overpowered or pushed. I think of things like Plunder Run, things you would run nine of, things that you could justify running a card that is not red, so it's not your most powerful offensive version of it. It's also not blue, which is not your most powerful resource um, way of utilizing that card. I don't know. Yellows are an interesting area of flesh and blood. In Classic Constructed, I feel like the design of yellow cards has felt more and more funky as we've moved further into the in further in time like further uh, along in flesh and blood as the game has matured yellow cards have seemed to uh, i see less and less of them in certain uh, certain class constructed decks uh i think in in limited they make a lot more sense um as a way to kind of diversify the power level of like limited decks and diversify the consistency so that your games are a bit more interesting but um yeah, I don't really have a fantastic answer for yellow cards moving forward outside of incentivizations to run yellow cards specifically with you know things like Luminaris that reward you for doing that. Yeah, when you look at the spectrum of cards and, well, the three pitch values in Flesh and Blood, obviously your reds, your blues, and then your yellows in the middle, yellows do hold the most awkward spot, like you say. To, to me, I think there's two distinctions. There's... They're designed for limited and they're designed for constructed. And they're designed for limited, like you say, makes a lot of sense as part of cycles generally. It's ways to, of course, you know, if you say that cards are split, they're not because of Majestics and, and rares and solo cycles, but let's say they were split 33% each, reds, yellows, blues. To get to a functional deck, you are probably going to have to play at least a couple of yellows in your deck, right? Even if you're the best draft. If, you know, there's, well, 42 cards in the set, but say it's 45 in yellow, you'd end up with 15 yellows potentially in your class or generics. So you could in theory play no yellows, but let's be honest, you know, you're going to have equipment in there. So that's going to take up some pick slots. You can have a, a cards that are last picks that aren't going to be playable, etc. You're going to still end up with some yellows, but that is kind of the balance of like how to use these yellows. And we've seen this be kind of, I think, at its heightened discussion during Uprising in terms of what yellow's standpoint is and limited and, you know, like yellows and <laughs> wizard. It's, you know, you, oh, did you, did you open the pool that had the Icelander yellows in it or all this kind of stuff. But I do think it has the most interesting sort of element of design when it comes to unlimited, like Brennan just said, balancing off the power versus resources. I think that's actually where yellows truly are what they're meant to do. And you saw it in early Flesh and Blood before mm. before you had all these other options at red and blue that you could swap in. Now you could get closer to this deck that's just like blues, reds, maybe a few yellows. And the design space for yellows in class constructed or constructed in general is at the majestic rare above level, right? It's specializations all the time. It's cards that uh you know i think of a card like sonic boom right it's not a red it's not mm -hmm. a blue you'd probably play it at either but it's a yellow and it, it, it makes sense right lessons in lava and kano uh singing steel blade and you know these these go on right blood rush bellows and these are interesting because i think they allow you to have a, a card value that's pitchable and you can set up for a potential ghost second cycle uh but also you know the power level is there and, and alice can balance that way a lot of these cards you still play them if they're at red you know and have the exact same thing and you definitely, play, sure. them, definitely yeah. play them at blue. So, I, yeah, I feel like uh, <clears throat> it, it's 
I feel like yellow Majestic cards are often a way of like nerfing or buffing cards mm-hmm. <laughs> in a weird way. Because, um, you know, like some of those cards, like if like Lessons in Lava existed as a blue or Sonic Boom existed as a blue, it would just be too powerful in Wizard because it would f- it'd be indistinguishable from Resource Card. also be one of your most powerful offensive cards in terms of its on-hit effect or its like ability they're able to utilize. I'm thinking about Lessons in Lava on that one. So like a yellow is like a good way to like nerf the card. You could also go red, but potentially red, um, if you kept the same values, just would be too underpowered on the mathematical spectrum, right? If we talk about the, the magic number eight. So I feel like yellow at the Majestic or Super Slot is sort of a good way to balance cards. Um, it's like a kind of a nerf yeah. but i guess also a buff if you're considering for that card to be red i think it's fine to have yellows be viable cards for limited and have some play to them in class constructed and that'd be okay you know for yellows and constructed formats to be 10 percent of the card pool i think that's okay i think that's fine i think that's a, a balance of the format and, and sometimes they're going to be more relevant than that brendan talked about plunder run at the top of the sort of question you know you could look at decks where maybe the red is actually the least optimal version potentially. So I think of something like Malvarian Skies in, uh, in Runeblade or in particularly in Viscerai. <clears throat> Red's probably the, the weakest of those options because yellow is pitchable. It does basically the same effect. So where the effect is, where you have like often two effects and at one effect is static, it's going to be the same at every single card value and then it changes. So the plunder run sort of discussion right there always has the card draw. Wolverine Skies always has the go again, and then you've got the plus one, plus two. You've got the rune chance one, two, three. Those are the ones where I think you're going to see more yellow cycle cards be played. And then the other one is like, yeah, where you're playing nine ofs, right? Like just straight up nine ofs. And then you you kind of have some like deck restriction stuff. Like you talked about Luminaris uh, as an interesting mm-hmm. one. I think where you play like some lower power cards for certain reasons. So like Belittle is like a particularly interesting one, like yellow shrill yes. to fit in Belittle, things like that. So um, yeah. I'm okay with what yellows do in this game. What's their point? Their point is to balance off resources and power. Does it work out quite the way that maybe James White intended it when he first designed the game? Maybe not, but I still think it works well enough and yellows are important to the game. So, yeah, yellows moving forward. um, I'm not sure if they are sort of holding up to the original design and the intention that they're meant to have in the game, um, especially in the constructed formats, as more cards enter the card pool and our decks get more synergistic. But I feel like in limited, yellows add a bit of variance and dynamic gameplay that make the game more interesting, right? We're not just, we don't just have decks that are composed of the most powerful, aggressive versions of our cards, as in red cards, and in the most powerful uh, resource and defensive version of our, of our cards, which might be blue cards, right? So yellow adds in sort of this, this variable, um, <coughs> this variable kind of quality of card that you can have in a limit in a limited deck and um adds more depth to to that sort of gameplay yep yeah i agree will we see one thing i don't like i just want to kind of end on this is that i don't really love the kind of yellow restrictions to deck building i think it's a bit i don't think it's that enjoyable like i look at luminaris and it's it's kind of cool and i don't mind maybe seeing it at some points i like it when it's a bit more subtle so i think of you know the use of yellow sixes in brute like that seems a bit more interesting to me is it powerful enough because you are missing out on potential upside of reds or the trade-off of blues maybe and maybe that's part of brute's problem but i think that's more interesting than just straight up deck restrictions so or even like Mm. you know i want to play belittle what does that restriction look like that's more interesting to me so yeah yeah, we'll we'll see we'll see 
I do wonder about yellows, <laughs> and oh, this is sort of classic me here, but I have wondered about yellows in wizard specifically, and waiting to get like some sort of white wizard, because yellows in wizard are actually like uh coasters right they 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 literally they don't do anything <laughs> you would almost you can never justify playing a yellow card you either play the the red version of your card or the blue version so oh, how you're you mean in cycles it, right? yeah in cycles so like in wizard the yellow cycle on a, a not majestic and not uh super rarity uh it's just completely useless so i feel like a, a wizard that could utilize those yellow cards would actually be pretty cool because outside of that i think that if a wizard card is yellow it almost immediately goes in the garbage can at this point i was gonna say because i was like uh sonic boom listens in lava tom and i want to have a chat with you <clears throat> if yeah you're just the, the majestics yeah the, those ones make it yeah yeah Great question there. Again, if you do want to get your questions into the Commander Cookout, please go ahead and submit them. All right, Brennan, we're going to move through onto the main topic of the show, which is combo decks and flesh and blood. Combo decks, very interesting concept in flesh and blood. It's not something that is easily definable. But if we were to talk about, you know, if I say combo deck to you, Brennan, and flesh and blood, what does that what does that mean to you? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, so the first thing that comes to mind is Kano, but it's, <laughs> there's it's. also, there's, I mean, there's two decks that come to mind and there's sort of the dichotomy between those two decks that also comes to mind, which is Bolton. Um, I'm a huge fan of that deck as everybody knows, but then there's also Kano, right? And how can I like this? How can I like and hate this quote unquote combo? these combo this combo archetype right and i think it's because there's a lot there's quite a big spread between decks that fall under that archetype right and they can be quite different so the first two decks come to mind for me are kano and bolton yeah what about just general concepts like what does combo mean to you in flesh and blood so i think it usually means that the deck is trying to win the game in a specific way or at least a very limited number of ways right and it's quite consistent in winning the game that way those ways right it's not just going to sort of it rarely will the deck randomly win in some sort of mid-range strategy or fatiguing the opponent or something like that like it has a quite a linear game plan that's usually uh centered around a couple of cards or maybe a single card in and of itself so that's usually how i think I would define combo decks. Yeah, it's usually going to result in a very sp- specific or at least semi-specific end game or sequence of the game that's going to deal a reasonable chunk of damage in some way, shape, or form. At least that's what we've seen so far with combo decks. So, yes. you know, use Bolton, Kano. Both of these are looking for like 30 plus damage turns often. If you're talking about like Wildfire, Kano, OTK, Viscera, right? That's a deck that immediately pops to my mind as like a very kind of the epitome of one of the combo decks we've seen in this format like that deck was in most matchups majority of matchups was just like your single focus was like get to a rune chunk count kill your opponent in one turn that was like the closest thing i think we've actually seen to a true otk deck it was really focused around getting to us all the turns led up to a specific point in the game to then execute it on a combo and bolton does that to uh, a degree for sure bolton actually pushes a bit of damage during that same with kano mm-hmm. you know you chip damage bolton is actually sitting up though using each of the turns to set up cards in in your soul that it later used to expend your combo while you're looking to set up other resources like luminaris and arsenal maybe an energy pot on the field plus your other resources start on the field like courage of Bladehold. whereas you know you play this visceral otk deck from back in the day with scalata and sonata being the main point of your combo and it's like okay i need to get to a specific rune chant every turn is like trading my life to set up rune chant so combo looks really different the other thing like that's interesting to me is like this idea of people call this like oh, otk decks that's the that's the interchangeable i think with with combo and flesh and blood is like these these one turn kill otk decks 
But they don't, the funny thing is they don't really exist. Like not many of the combo decks actually kill in one turn. Often they'll chip damage at the start or they'll do a combo and then chip damage at the end. It's not really a true one turn kill, which I find quite funny, but there is a couple of decks that can genuinely do it. Brainstorm Kano is definitely one of those. Yeah. I mean, truly, yeah, the true one turn kills I feel like are, are, they are the exception rather than the example of those decks. You know, like a lot of decks have the capability, but it's not what they do uh, most of the time. No, it's a terminology thing, which I think is important to understand is that one turn kill and when people use that term in Flesh and Blood doesn't actually mean one turn kill. It's referring to a deck that sets up a massive push of damage on one turn, which is kind of what I wanted to talk about a little bit is that that happens because Flesh and Blood is played over cycles, right? So combo decks look quite different to how they do in other games because you're not, it's really hard to amass resources. So you can, you know, have things like energy potions. You have your equipment on the board that can lead to that combo state. Think of like Courage of Bladehold with, with Bolton, uh, Scalata before the banning with OTK Viscerai, even Stormstriders with Kano, right? Like there's often combo decks will have some form of resources on the board because enable to, to enable a big damage turn that gets over the kind of, you know, quote unquote average hand you're going to need extra resources in some way, shape, or form. Now, sometimes that'll just be the five cards, specific five cards you have and how they combine together. Probably Blood Rush Bellows and, and Claws turns are a good example of that. But even then, Claws are on the table, right? And they're an important part of your combo. Um, Arcbone Strapping even, you know. There's, there's, there's often you're going to have, or maybe Energy Potions are important to the combo you're trying to pull off. There's always going to be, often with combo decks, some sort of resource on the table, which is really interesting, I think, when you, you think about the kind of future design space of potential combo decks in Flesh and Blood. Yeah, <laughs> which that the future design space of combo decks in Flesh and Blood is particularly interesting because I do wonder if a lot of the combo decks that exist in Flesh and Blood exist on purpose or on accident, um, like if they're intentionally designed. Because I think that the play patterns of combo decks are not sort of in the ethos of how most of Flesh and Blood is designed. The game is generally thought of to be interactive, right? And this back and forth between two decks and combo decks sort of break that tenet by uh, actually doubling down on the non-interaction, right? And just being sort of one side of the board focused. That's a, that's a good point. My kind of take is that I think a lot of them the interactions are on purpose is the level to which the combo deck executes on purpose by design. I'm, I'm not sure that maybe some of these are quite, you know, we've seen bannings, right? So obviously it's probably not quite to the extent that LSS thought it would be, you know, it's, it's even further than that. But I do think that you talked about interaction. The way this game works, a lot of the combo decks you can still interact with to a degree, right? So if I take the Kano combo, for example, right? Wildfire combo, Arcane Barrier, Oasis Respite, you know, Aaron is prayer. Like there is there is ways to interact with it. Is are they commonly seen? Maybe not. Bolton is an interesting one. Like, what's your ways to interact there? Is it you know armor. Like commander, commander conquer, yeah. yeah. Armor and defense reactions. It's uh well, you know, actually the, the best way to interact with them, I guess, is probably channel like frigid or hypothermia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that they they're actually like there is a level of interaction to all yeah. of them. Um it just feels like the way those decks execute their sort of their final game plan, uh, their final form being the combo, it does feel outside of the wheelhouse of how the rest of the game is designed. I do think that Bolton is potentially an exception to that because Bolton seems intentionally designed around that Lumina combo. It doesn't seem like it's an interaction or an accident of like, a, you know... Uh, 
cards being more powerful than they expected mm-hmm. together. It seems like Lumina was actually meant to be played that way, almost because of things like Beacon of Victory, where the wildfire combo just goes so far over the regular math of the game, and just its ability to kill the opponent from their literal starting life total of 40 seems like it's like, okay, that's probably not on purpose, and whether they're going to let it exist or let it be banned really comes down to like the consistency of uh like how that that happening right yeah it's i think that i think a lot of them are on purpose and one of the examples i can give of this is that you know, back in my day back in the boomer days uh there was there was these online events that happened during arcane rising and some of the devs actually played in these they they would they would like um i think james said yep you guys can go and play in these online events you know like spotlight some of the the decks because obviously the game was a little smaller at that time you know there was a lot happening in that world where the game was still growing. It was so much smaller. But I remember Jason Chung playing in one of these events and playing an OTK Viserai deck before Scalata was printed. This is pre-Crucible mm-hmm. of War. So in my eyes, I'm like, okay, they, they know about this deck. Like, he's playing an OTK Viserai deck before Scalata and Sonata are even around. Like, this was on yeah. purpose. You know, these were clear upgrades to, to an archetype that they knew about. So I think these archetypes, are, and when you talk combo, these combo builds are there. I think Alice is pretty aware of them. And I know someone like Jason, he loves combo decks. So I think... Um, yeah. Let me take you back in time. So we're going to go back in my day, a bit of nostalgia. So the first deck, like the first deck that was almost ever unveiled to the public from Legend Story Studios was actually a freaking combo deck. It was OTK Brute. <laughs> when yeah, Brute Rhino. was like looked at like... Brute was looked at as garbage tier in Classic Constructed by 90 to 98% of the player base and then they did a little video series and they had this ODK Brute uh, strategy it was pitch stacking with uh, Barrage beatdowns but um, yeah I, I, y- you said back in my day so it reminded me that that was actually like one of the first yeah. classic decks that was ever unveiled to the public from Legend Studio Studios yeah you can go see that video on YouTube if you go to Fab TCG YouTube channel it's Jason playing it's Kale, Kale's playing Bravo Jason is playing, Jason Chung is playing this, yeah this <laughs> Ot- quotation marks otk rhino deck it's not it's a combo rhino deck but where he looks to utilize a lot of like zero for fours to push damage and trade damage early on and then remembrance back or you know he's like t- tome of else to gain life and draw cards and then he ends up setting this in-game stack like it's energy potions to play in-game stack, stack of like five barrage and beatdowns to just be like no hand dead um so a very traditional kind of and we're going to talk about this sliding scale sort of aspect we still see that combo in some degree utilized in rhino decks quite often mm-hmm. with multiple barrage and beatdowns but the decks are no longer focused solely around that combo they are actually uh they're they're a part of the deck and that's something i want to talk about next which is like what are not true combo decks and what is this kind of sliding scale of combo decks because aggro decks that beat the curve you know fire briar i think briar redline briar mount heroic briar uh fire with pouncing links and salt the wounds sort of plans those aren't true combo decks but they do have combos within them, right? They do have these access to these big force of nature turns. They have these access to, you know, think of fire, right? I hit my out of war and it's a pouncing links turn and I get to push above the curve of damage, you know, sort of, I can easily do 30 damage turns, right? With pouncing links. Forget about what Stubby Hammerers was doing before that, but. Yeah, well, I was, was going to ask if that was a combo deck because that one felt like a combo deck. It was like the when they got rid of Stubby Hammers, it's like, yeah, it's a bit mid-rangey and then it pops off. But the, when they had freaking Stubby Hammers, it was like, a sh- it was like, Turn one, even, mm. I mean, I think there was even an excuse sometimes doing it on turn two. It's like, as soon as you saw, like, even Iota of the piece, you just went, right? You just did as much damage as possible. Yeah, and that's what I think is interesting. They have combo aspects to them. Are they true combo decks? I guess it depends on how you want to define combo. The way I kind of look at it is, like, they have combo 
packages within them. They have these synergistic packages within them to push above the curve of damage to do some big damage, at least once in the game. Mount Heroic does that, right? Okay, I, I Mount Heroic, and then I play out three to four, zero for fours, you know, and I'm presenting a 30 damage, you know, 25 plus damage turn. Those, those sort of things, right? Those are combo aspects. Then I guess the kind of thing after that you have as well is like you have these kind of attrition lock style decks that set up combinations of cards, but they're not, they're just like dash, right? Getting items into play. They're trying to set up engines to be able to do something. Are they a true combo deck? I, you know, maybe not in the way you think about it, but they do want to set up combinations of cards and trade their life totals to get to a game state. It's kind of like a, a lock deck kind of thing, right? They're trying to set up mm-hmm. a game, a lock of the game. Um, the Reinar with Bloodwash Bellows, that's another one, right? Where it's like, oh, we just talked about the Barraging Beatdown package. Like those have these kind of comboistic packages in them to end games and push damage and have this kind of non-interactive damage like you talked about. But the, the kind of core of them, they aren't generally combo decks. Although there's an exception to this. I remember at the team calling Brendan, the, the Reinar deck that we played at that, the calling across the two two continents was this more combo style Reinar deck. It focused around, you know, Claws, uh, Bloodwash Bellows, uh, Hard and Cross Strap. I think Hard and Cross Strap might have been banned at that point and where we had to play Barkbone Strapping, I think it was. And then, you you know, you play your Blood Rush Bellows, you Claw Claw, and you end with like a Swing Big or a Bear Fangs to push, you know, over 20 damage. And that that's that's maybe closer to combo. And that's what, kind of why I call it a, a sliding scale, right? It's like that deck had a, a massive combo element to it. And often in most matchups, you're trying to set up that sort of combo element. But also it wasn't as maybe combo as OTK Viscera, right? Where that is, the whole deck is just a combo. Yeah, definitely. Especially like OTK Viscerai, not OTK Viscerai, but like Combo Viscerai and Blitz, which was, that was an interesting combo deck because it wasn't, it wasn't like a, it wasn't this deck that just tried to build up rune chance and like OTK you, but it would just, it was just so freaking powerful that it would end up just killing you. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know how would you, what's that a combo? I think that. It's combo. It's it, skillarded it, it, and used yeah. rune chance. It was definitely yeah. still. It had a combo in it, but yeah. it's okay. Just this is the intense combo into broken. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit stupid, really. This is the kind of thing I have. Right, I think I want to. I would define combo as a as a scale, and you can be somewhere along that too. I have some sort of combo in my deck. My deck has a lot of combo. Other sort of smaller combos in it. <clears throat> so my deck is a true out and out combo deck that wants to assemble one particular game. You know, one particular sort of state of the game using cards and resources to. Close to OTK, close to one turn kill my opponent, or at least deal them a lot of damage to be able to finish the game out from there. That's how I would say is kind of the scale. And the the one sort of thing that you look at there is like card replaceability. What's the replacement level of these cards? So I look at something like Viscerae, you use an example, right? <clears throat> I would say as a deck at the kind of lower end of the combo spectrum, if you want to say. And a lot of the cards are replaceable to a degree. You know, it's like, okay, well, I don't have this busted card. I have this other busted card. Whereas like, if I look at, or, you know, like, okay, I'm playing Brute and I don't have a Swing Big, but I got Bear Fangs on the end of my uh, Blood Rush Bellows, or I've got, you know, this, um, I don't know, this Smash Instinct on the end, whatever it is, you know, there's there's different things you can have in that situation. Whereas I go to the far end, it's like, if I don't have Aether Wildfire, there ain't no replaceability of that card. You know what I mean? Like, I need Wildfire, I need Blazing Aether. Those are not those are non-negotiable. Like same with OTK Viscerae. I need Sonata. That 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 card is non-negotiable. I need Ninth Blade or Rattle Bones to be able to enact my plan. Like these cards are non-negotiable. The other thing that I think defines true combo versus these decks that have combo packages in them is that a deck like OTK Viscerae, for example, as a true combo deck, is setting up the game state to get to this point. 
Whereas something like a, uh, a you know, a, a Brute or a Viscerai that's a bit more aggressive in that standpoint that has this kind of combination. We saw this during ProQuest Season 2, this kind of combination Viscerai deck. Maybe it's ProQuest Season 1. They could do little small combos, but also it was just an aggro deck. The, 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 it's not getting to a, a point and being like, okay, I've set up the last three to four turns for this specific thing, or I've dug for these very specific cards and now they're set up and I'm waiting for my window to go. No, it's like, okay, I fortified Rune Chant. This is really good value for Scalata here. I'm going to have a pop-off Scalata turn and just push big damage. Same with Fire, right? I haven't necessarily, like, I haven't asked all my Art of War, found this other very specific card and this third very specific card. Like, it's not like I need Art of War, Belittle, um, what's the one that gives plus one on your attacks? Spreading Flames. Spreading <laughs> Flames. It's not like you're like, I need all three of these before I can go off and do a combo. It's like, no, I, I have, you know, a good damage turn here with Art of War and I'm going to, Pouncing links pop to push damage. That's that's what I kind of see as the distinctions along the scale of combo, Brendan. Yeah, well, I mean, I would definitely agree with that. Great, I'm glad we're in agreement. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a it's a freaking hard concept to define. Like the thing really is, is, like the term the term is the it, 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 you're describing so many decks that are sort of on this 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 quite a diverse scale of what they're actually trying to do and the terms are also misused like very like a lot right so like i can tell you about my otk old him deck right i just fatigue you all game and then one turn you just run out of cards otk yeah i think terminology is important and that's actually why i want to talk about this a lot as well is like what you know this kind of scale is something i wanted to present in this kind of podcast like what a true what is a true combo deck versus what is a deck <laughs> otk ultim brilliant um, yeah, i'm just still laughing about it <laughs> which is a what it versus what is a deck that is combo stick it has this kind of combo element to it versus which are just decks that just have good synergy and good interactions within them mm, that's yeah i thought about this earlier when you talked about it. you said that the the sort of result was specific i think with a combo deck the result is specific but also the ingredients are specific sure and the more specific the ingredients are the more of a combo deck it is right if it's just the end game then like you know your ingredients are like whatever you said card replaceability that's another word for it right and that that's sort of the scale that you're sliding on yeah for you know it's like a it's like a whiskey versus like scotch debate right you know it's like all these decks might have combo elements to them so all of these decks are combo in, in some way, shape, or form, but not all of them are combo decks. You know what I mean? And I think that's kind of uh, one way to look at it. So confuse people yeah. even more. It's not a not not all the yeah, your Bolton deck is not the same as my twenty six year old barrel age just gentleman's Kano deck. It's like you're not even close. You're just a Kentucky bourbon over there. It's so funny. I would even say. Bolton Sabres is like on the same. If I was to put them on the scale somewhere, I'd probably put Kano and like the current builds of Kano and the current builds of Bolton probably on the same like level well, of the spectrum in terms of the card replaceability, yeah, in terms of yeah, what they're trying yeah, to get I to. I think you're right. I, I was looking for an excuse to, sh- to kind of shit on Bolton were. there. Like I was. But also, I think that the, the big differential between Bolton and Kano is that Bolton does not have nearly as much of an engine and Kano has more of an engine and manipulates the deck more through like drawing cards. Bolton still has tutors, but you know, Kano has a bit more manipulation of the deck, I think. Yeah, yeah, to a degree. I mean, you could say Listens in Lava versus Beacon of Victory, but yeah, those. But also, I guess the thing with uh, Kano is that you have, uh, I think you've got Ragamuffin's Hat plus Stormstriders, whereas for the Bolton side of it, you know, you've got Courage of Bladehold plus Gallantry. Is you know, Courage Blade Hold is the big one. That's the one. If they also had this other thing that let you, I don't know, play your Luminas in succession or something, or 
you know, I, yeah, I think that's the kind of the, the resources, the engines, like you say, are a, a bit more in favor of Kano. But it's kind of it's it's here nor there. It's just I'm just saying I think they're very similar in terms of the the scale of where they are. I think part of the engine uh, is actually in the hero ability, effectively drawing your card and digging you, um, even if yes, you don't hit the the piece you're looking for. And at the same time, having the the tone package as well as like opt in the form of Aether Spindle, like you're just you're seeing so much more of your deck on average, right? Because it just feels like you're able to manipulate it more. But again, this is a classic Kano digression. <laughs> Whatever. Well, those never happen in our episodes. I don't know what's. <laughs> All right. So we've determined that combo is a it's a scale it's somewhere you know it's no it's not defined it's not not it's not that you have combo decks and non-combo decks you have decks that have combo elements to them and then you slide all the way up to these true combo decks so my question for you brendan is are these decks these true combo decks are they good for the game oh that's a good question <laughs> wow that is like I, let me rephrase I, that I actually. let me rephrase yeah. that because maybe that's too tough question what is the why are they important in the game or why what is their role in the game take it however you want maybe you can talk about this and maybe you don't need to talk about if they're good for the game because that might be a bit of a, a philosophical question. yeah 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 because they might be bad for them they're probably they might be net bad for the game uh, but i think that so i'm just going to speak from like a player perspective and like me as like an individual i've i think that those decks are important to me as a player because I feel like that's the way that I like to express my creativity in the game. Like, although it's a bit different from a normal game of Flesh and Blood where there's, you know, it's more back and forth and more mid-range, like, I find a lot of joy around trying to find these, like, sort of obscure synergies between my cards and have, you know, gain a bit more agency over the manipulation of my deck than sort of you would normally would in, in in a game of Flesh and Blood. And to me, that's, like, what I find fun. And it's, like, effectively, like... At least in the version of in the in the example of Kano, it is a, it is a form of solitaire, right? Like I have fun sort of playing my own game and playing against myself uh, in the context of a two-player game, right? I find that to be very cerebral and fun for some reason, and all I can say is that for me as an as a player. Um, that's sort of what sparks joy. And I think that it's really cool that this game offers like your normal mid-range sort of flesh and blood game style, very back and forth. We're trading cards, we're trading, we're defending, we're attacking. But then it has this other extreme where I'm able to play a deck like Kano, which is kind of one-sided. Yeah. I think why they're important to me is the game of flesh and blood is revolves around turn cycles, right? And if you can break a turn cycle, you you gain advantage, right? If you trade up on a turn cycle, and this is you know very famously at the moment being talked about with the sort of this Michael Hamilton Icelander deck that's been bubbling up since US Nationals and seeing success with this idea of you know you trade up on turn cycles three for eight, you know you trade up on a traditional two card uh, six or seven with a, a two card for eight, you know things like this. But why I think combo decks are important is that they take that one step further where they break the turn cycle by using resources on board by setting up a certain game state by trading their life totals to do even more than that you know going 20 30 damage over the kind of the threshold but at the cost of either their own life total during the game very specific situations to set up and they can be disrupted and i think that's why these are important for the game you know whether it's bolton whether it's kano whether it's otk viscerai whether it's brainstorm kano whether it's you know sort of combo Berserk Reinar. exactly yeah <laughs> whatever you want to talk about we'll talk about some some options at the end of what you could be looking at if you're trying to build combo decks right now because there's a lot of things to explore out there but that's why i think it's important um 
and and this is kind of leads into like what has made some of the best decks so successful i think is that they have these repetitive ways to be able to set this up you know you talk about kano it's like okay my two resources are already my two sort of really key resources plus my engine on the table i have my kano hero ability i've got my ragamuffins hat i've got my storm striders and then i'm looking for a couple of cards to then combo off energy potion you know like you know this if you have an energy potion on the table as a kano player and you're trying to combo your win rate goes up exponentially it's so important because you have these extra resources on the table you know uh, otk viscerai so many replacement level cards that created rune chance and then you got to this specific game point that only really required one to two cards in your hand uh which is pretty phenomenal to be honest that's why it was again so good and bolts and sabers as much as you want to talk about Britain, has been successful and has seen repetitive play one because i think people find it enjoyable but because it's like when you assemble this kind of exodia like you know even if you get to triple lumina it's very hard to beat triple lumina um unless you you know you've got some sort of like defensive thing set up or something maybe you played an enchanting melody the turn before i don't know but like unless you you know it's really hard to beat that so these decks have found success because of these different elements they have to them it's so funny because i was thinking about this just when you're talking about that i think that and i'm gonna I'm a, I'm a digress a bit or i'm gonna i'm gonna go off on a tangent here real quick uh, and that's a i think that the the the, the thing that's the least enjoyable while playing a combo deck and the least satisfying is when you're going to combo somebody finally after slogging through this game and then they just concede right so if you drop triple luna <laughs> your opponent combo. can just concede but with when you when you are playing kit you're when you're playing kano your opponent never knows they never know if they're dead they never know and that's the best part is you always get to play out the entire combo some of them do some of them some of them just concede to be honest but the one that actually i had once had someone concede to me playing playing kano i had no blazing ethers left in my deck i played my wildfire and i played my lessons in lava and they were just like, oh, i guess i'm dead and then just like scooped up the cards <laughs> i was like i was like oh, i i don't actually have blazing left in my deck i have to go get a tome and like it was a, it was just a, like an armory i was like don't concede I, I have to go get a tome here and like dig for like more damage <laughs> yeah it's quite funny so brendan we've played a lot of combo and combo based decks uh through kind of our time in flesh and blood we played even Chain, we started with Chain as kind of one of the, the formative decks that we played when we first started testing together. And that mm, was a very just powerful, aggressive deck. But we also had this particular build that was really set up for OTK that could combo for 30, even 40 damage uh, in an in-game situation pretty consistently with the cards we played in the deck. Uh, we then, you know, we moved on to this Kano deck for, for PT1. Actually, even before that, OTK Viscerai is what I played at my national championships. Um, we played Kano and a Wildfire combo-based Kano deck at PT1. Even at PT2, we played Briar, but we played a deck that maxed out on the combo potential of Force of Nature. We played Triple Amulet, we played Force of Nature, we played Creepers to try and maximize these big explosive damage turns with Mount Heroic or Sans Mount Heroic. We played as well Explosive Growth for the same sort of potential. And then, of course, Kano at, at Worlds this year. So basically every deck we've played at professional level events in the past 12 to 18 months have been decks that either are pretty pretty far along that kind of combo centric scale or just full blown combo decks mm. well what's the reason for that aiden yeah what well, what is the reason <clears throat> you kind of talked a bit about <clears throat> sorry about it already right like what do you like about these combo style decks but <clears throat> the main kind of thing is is that it gives the ability to have this kind of unknown factor you talked about you know like especially with kano pt1 it was like okay do people necessarily know how this combo works and how to play against it the answer then was no people definitely a lot better for worlds but then the next thing comes into play which is this inevitability in certain game states you get to set up these game states that you know have an inevitability against your opponent otk viscerai probably did this as one of the best 
Um, it's the ability to remove a lot of variables as well, such as the opponent's draws, because if, if your game plan is so centered around what you want to do, and apart from interactive states from your opponent, often you can ignore a lot of what your opponent's doing, uh, which is, is kind of something that I think is reasonably important in Flesh and Blood if you're trying to f- exploit powerful sort of interactions. Um, you can even take out their play skill for better or for worse uh mm-hmm. into that as well and their knowledge i think comes out of it a little bit as well repetitive game states that have defined lines is like a really sort of important thing as well you know when you combo with this kano thing with the sort of wildfire combo there's an element brendan where you know exactly how much damage you're going to deal it comes down to basically just kind of knowing knowing the math and knowing like what the uh the multiplicative damage is but once you learn that you know once you get to a game state how much damage you can deal you're not sort of pulling cards off the top of your deck be like oh you know what do i draw next is this gonna be enough damage you're like nope i've got my pieces together i know this is 36 damage through my opponent's arcane barrier one or arcane barrier two whatever it might be and this actually was kind of the same with briar like when you popped off with a force of nature turn and amulet you knew exactly how much damage you could push and it was about you know maybe my opponent blocks this way maybe you know you're just trying to work out what your opponent could do from there but you have these kind of repetitive game states you can get to same with otk viscera right i get to you usually work out, okay, I get to like 14, 15 room chance. I know I should be able to do approximately this amount of damage based on, you know, my average hit rate in the deck. Once I get to 18, okay, now I'm even this much to hit. You kind of had these like break points in the deck. And these are just repetitive game states that <clears throat> through testing, through tweaking the deck, you can get to. And you have this knowledge, this kind of like power in your pocket of like what you can end up sort of dealing in damage. And I think it's, that's a really big draw to play in these decks, to be honest. Yeah, so I think that in in our opinion, and a lot of high-level players and teams and groups, and they would disagree with us, but I think in our opinion, these combo decks are the most unfair thing that you can do in Flesh and Blood, and that's why we opt to bring them to these events, um, is we do think that it gives us the most edge. And I think that oftentimes, um, these are arguably not the most powerful decks. Uh, And I think that we've chosen less powerful decks occasionally, to get this sort of level of non-interactivity pattern-based gameplay and uh yeah i mean what else would i can't remember i can't think it's about not, like what else it's not super easy to yeah. explain right that's the that's the tough yeah. thing but the we the just like them at the end of the, at the, at the, i think the part of it is like we just like it like that's just that's what we're drawn to like we we like to we like having this feeling like we broke the game right like feeling like we know something that other people don't and that we're surprising our opponents consistently and they have to adapt like we understand their game plan we've played their decks their decks are uh you know public this the strategy is known and then they have to sort of figure out what we've been working on for three and three to four months in the course of 50 minutes and that's that's pretty overwhelming on the other side of the board yeah a big one i will point out to end on you know why why these sort of combo combo decks they're actually pretty easy to play you don't have to make as many decisions and it's less taxing you know once you get to, people go like oh can is such a big brain dick yeah it's not really to be honest like you, there's a big learning curve to when you should and shouldn't do stuff and there's some intuitive things and there's some understanding of how breakpoints and interactions work with what your opponents can do but there's a lot of repetitive game states especially around wildfire combos and and that's i think one of the big draws to these kind of decks is that once you get your head around them no matter the matchup because of your playing quite solo in your your game plan yes there's some interactions that might come into it but you are doing a lot of the same things and that becomes a lot easier to do and i think that's 
you know, we're looking for power inter powerful interactions that are consistent. Consistency is really key, I think, in this game. Other people look for that in different ways. You know, you look at someone like a, a Michael Hamilton. He looks at, at it through, like, consistency to uptrade on turn cycles. He loves decks like Ultim and Icelander for this, this very purpose, right? On the flip side, maybe how we look at it is we look for really powerful interactions that we can consistently exploit at some point during a game. And that's, um, yeah, that's just different ways to look at Flesh and Blood. But I really am glad that we finally did this in a podcast because I think it's it's not the easiest sort of thing to break down and discuss but but well, here yeah. it is we we don't we don't even really know why we do it to be honest like yeah I, like Sasha, i said when i read why. the note yeah it's true like <laughs> when i read the notes i was like wow we really have played this like kind of combo deck every single time and it's just i think that for the group of players that we tend to associate ourselves with for all of these tournaments they tend towards these decks and uh, yeah sasha is a big push for that like sasha just spends a lot of time uh by himself thinking about wacky combos which we disproved 95 plus percent of but then one of them there's like something there and then we build on it for months and it's a really it's honestly a very very rewarding experience to to find like a uh, a sequence of cards and um sort of build an entire game plan and deck around it and just exploit that like it's one of my favorite things to do in the game yeah, that's a great point. But even before we had Sasha back on board post his time with LSS, though, we were, we were doing this sort of thing, I think. It's something that I really look for, like, two-card interactions a lot. That's one of my favorite things to look at in Flesh and Blood. That's why I've, I always thought Heart and Cross Trap was, like, ridiculous because it's just always too... It's just energy potion that starts in play. Like, that's just kind of nuts. But, yeah, anyway, I want to... Before we end up the show, I want to talk about how to build combo decks and some things that you can focus on when piloting and building combo decks because I think there's some really important sort of rules. And some of this comes from our time spent working on these these kind of decks in Flesh and Blood. Some of it comes from our discussions with with players like Sasha who have been involved in our sort of testing and, and developing these decks. And then the other is actually there's this article that's quite a seminal sort of article, I think, in Magic the Gathering that talks about combo decks. I think you know this, Brendan. I've already got some notes from this, but it's by Matt Nass and talks about... Uh, kind of pitfalls to avoid when playing and piloting combo decks and i've kind of taken some of these and translated them into the flesh and blood world because it doesn't translate directly but i think there's a lot of things you can take away from this and some of them are really really important they do come across really well so um these are a few things that you can avoid or do to ensure that you can build and pilot your combo decks better so the first one is brendan don't dilute your deck i think this is a really big one so it's pretty self-explanatory but i think i see this happen a lot in flesh and blood a prime example of this is something like we've talked about Cannon a lot on this. Let's just go back to the well, the Cannon Wildfire mm -hmm. deck, and then people playing other cards in this deck to try and combo other points of damage or push other points of damage, have different win conditions in the deck. So yeah. often a big one with this was like people would play Forked Lightning and Stir, Stir the Aether ones yeah. as like additional Should kind I? of ways to do damage. But those don't help your Wildfire combo. Those actually actively detract from your Wildfire combo. You can't play those cards in your Wildfire combo turn. So that is an example of diluting your deck, right? Yeah, you know, it's even worse is like people will be like, oh, maybe I should play a popper or two against Prism, which is your bad matchup. It was like a terrible, f it was not a good matchup. But like the poppers, they actually didn't help you. They made things way worse because like if you ever whiffed on Kayla, you just like immediately lose the freaking game because it's like three to four turn. It's like a three to four turn game. And like that's 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 the pinnacle of diluting your deck is adding a whiff in for Kano, which is like why you would take Iva Fidia out. It's like if you think that the margin is low enough and like against an aggressive deck, like you just can't justify playing that card because you hit it, you lose instantly. It's so funny in PC one we had this discussion. Like some of us would play I, some of us weren't. Like I think you didn't yeah. play I a lot. I played it sometimes, and I think in the end, I Sasha played was it. Oh, yeah. sorry, you were playing it. Sasha was like not playing it basically majority of the yeah. time. And I was like 50-50. <laughs> 
So a lot of people like really disagree with this ideology of thinking, and I do think it's fundamentally flawed. But uh, and the reason that's flawed is because there's a whole school of thought that just thinks like you play better cards than your opponent, and you have a better deck, like you'll win more often as like yeah, more often, like you'll you'll win yeah. more games, right? But if you really start to like introspect about playing Ivafidia, <laughs> like the thing is, it's like you play it in, you can play it in lower, like you would think you could, like, okay, I can play it in lower stakes. So maybe I can play it later in the Swiss rounds, so maybe not round one, round two, where I can maybe get bumped to the prison bracket if I lose. So maybe I can play Ivafidia and I could, I could risk hitting it because it gives me like a two to 3% edge potentially against like some of these decks. And as I progress through Swiss, I can play Ivafidia up until the end of Swiss. Then I get to top eight. Once I'm in top eight, I'm in an elimination bracket. And if I ever hit Ivafidia, I immediately lose the entire tournament and I'm out. So maybe I have to cut Ivafidia there. But then you get to the finals and in the finals you're against, you're against a deck where you know that you're fundamentally a, an underdog. You're, you're playing from behind. It's like, maybe I should play Ivafidia because the X percent gain I can have from having the card in my deck is worth it because I'm already sort of favored to lose this game. And this sort of thinking is like so sacrilegious to like how some people view card games and I agree with them, but it's just funny how you can like walk yourself down this sort of uh, this like fallacy of like a rabbit hole of like, mm. when do I, and when do I not play I, I do think that the, in the end, the answer is probably never, but yeah, it, it just gets, it gets funky. I played I in every single match at the World Championship, just so you know. Uh, but back yeah, to I combo mean. decks. <laughs> I want to give a few more examples of this kind of... So that is that is actually really interesting. But this other idea of like diluting your deck, some other examples are people putting things like pump spells. So like come to fight, things like that, and OTK Viscerai or Arknight Ascendancy in there that just isn't part of the best combo that you can do in OTK Viscerai. Uh, playing cards in your Bolt and Sabres deck that maybe are good for the Raiden build if you're in this kind of hybrid, but mm. do not help you for your... Bolton combo so command and conquer is like a, a classic it's not a light card it uh you know so it's not it's not charging a card either and uh it's a whiff on your combo turn non-blood deck cards in your chain deck <laughs> yeah that was yep <laughs> so that's that, that's a great segue because non-chain deck non-blood uh, deck cards in your chain deck there's a spectrum and this is where it becomes difficult and this is why i think there's a bit of a don't don't dilute your deck yes but there's also some kind of caveats to this is that where does your deck fall on the spectrum if it's a hard combo deck do not dilute your deck. And if you're trying to build a hard combo deck, do not dilute your deck. If you're somewhere in between and you're using combos of spectrum, like Chain, for instance, where you have this maybe in-game setup with Rift Binds and stuff, yeah, you you have your main game plan is not to combo. So you can dilute your deck effectively, but you, you're not really because you're not a combo deck. So I think that's really important to understand where you're on the spectrum. There's there's some some caveats to this kind of idea of don't dilute your deck. But in general, if you're starting with a very combo heavy deck or your deck is focused around the combo, especially when you're testing and trying to work out what the best version of this combo can look like, do not dilute your deck. Don't just, you know, the old, oh, I'll start with three sync below, start with three command and conquer, start with three E-strike. Like, get away from that. That's not where you want to be. Yeah, not um, for combo. <laughs> I do, the other thing as well with diluting decks, I see a lot of people do this during sideboarding. So they might have built out this beautiful 60 card combo deck that works really well. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I need this card for this matchup, this card for this matchup, like, you know, poppers for instance. And they start to dilute their combo. This might be the right situation, the right decision in some situations. But majority of the time, this is going to be incorrect to dilute your deck in yeah. this way. It might be correct at some points to play a card to beat a specific piece of hate. Or, you know, it's like, okay, I cannot beat this deck because of XYZ reason. Maybe I do need some some cards in there, but often the best way to do it is just going to be be more consistent. So just have just yeah. don't delete your deck. I don't know if I, I think we've said it on Arsenal Pass, but I don't know if people know the story of the PT like the PT1K and I was like the sideboard. 
it was there was it was a 60 card deck like the sideboard we, we added we added 15 cards so that we would have a toolbox of cards to figure out in top eight that was it other than that it was a 60 card deck debatably like you had Scout. a mirror to scolding for prism yeah and, and once and like one a couple yeah and scour Scout. chain for chain but then like prism. yeah the, the thing was like the emeritus maybe wasn't even good enough in the prism we just like didn't that have enough time so we just we like the entire sideboard was pretty much just top eight cards and it was a 60 card deck my sideboard was scours i stopped playing the emeritus by the last rounding it's prism or i maybe maybe i've had like one or two but i was like yeah i just want most con- i basically this went this don't dilute my deck just play the most consistent build yep. which is the main deck 60 and the scour still actually didn't dilute the deck so that was fine i was okay to play that um playing too patiently this is one I see quite a bit where people, especially when they first learn to play combo decks, is that they play too patiently. They don't understand where the point of needing to combo and where the point of the, if they don't combo this turn, they're just going to bleed out. They won't find another window to combo. This is quite common with Kano. I saw it quite a bit with OTK mm-hmm. Viserai. It's essentially not pulling the trigger at the right time. Now, this is a really hard thing to find out. Sometimes you'll pull the trigger too early and you'll learn from that. But sometimes you just have to take the risk. It's like, wow, what if my opponent has this? What if they do? What if they have the card that beats you on this turn? I'm Bolton into Icelander. What if they have the hypothermia? What if they do? Can you actually win the game if you don't go off here? That's the most important thing to think about. So yeah, playing too patiently is like a, it's a really tough one, but it's something I see people do quite a lot. Oh, it happens so much with Kano. Because Kano, um, you're like, oh, they're, you know, they're at 32, but they might have 81. I can only get them down to this. And it's like, if you get them down to five, they're freaking dead anyway. Like, you go one more turn cycle, the likelihood that you rip something off the top of your deck that can kill them is so high. But you still are going into this sort of world of the unknown, where the mm-hmm. Kano combo deck is actually a world of sort of of knowns and it's a world of exacts because usually you have the math and you just know they're dead and you're making the choice to combo early because this is your window and then you have to play maybe into that unknown but often it's the correct choice yeah the the tough thing with that right is that what often happens in that situation is like okay i need all five cards to combo i need my opponent to have maximum one card in their hand because if they have two cards in hand they're going to be able to increase the arcane barrier but once you get down to a certain life total they can just play two card hands into you right and just bleed through damage and you're just going to bleed out eventually so it's super, you know, as soon as you block with one card from your hand, it's Kano, for instance, like, okay, combo potential is basically off. They can throw their whole hand at you. So you're yeah. in this dichotomy. So often, you know, not pulling the trigger, playing too patiently. Um, mis-evaluating cards in the combo and not understanding how the combo should adapt. This is a big one of having this rigid idea of how your combo should look every single time. And it's just not going to be perfect. A, a good example of this, I think, was like OTK Viserai. You know, you had this kind of idea of like, okay, I need to get to 14 rune chance. That was always the base. It's like 14 rune chance. And then I need Rattle Bones plus Sonata plus uh, a blue and my boots up. And it's like, yeah, that's perfect. But sometimes you're not going to be able to be in that situation. Sometimes you're going to have to just hope that you had a ninth blade off of your Sonata. Sometimes you're going to have to do it off 10 rune chance and hope that you had a, a pretty perfect split. Misevaluating the kind of the value of these cards in the combo. It's like it can lead to partially this idea of playing too patiently as well but also sometimes you might just have them dead anyway i I cannot tell you i've done this twice at freaking pro tours where i've missed combo lines that weren't the default line with kano Mm. to miss lethal (laughs) yeah to miss lethal i've done it in two two swiss rounds now at pt1 and at worlds where i had the lethal but i was so focused on the traditional combo line that i actually just missed the lethal that i had with a different a slightly different addendum to the combo yeah that's 
honestly one of the most enjoyable things about the Kano deck is you can always Jesus Jesus flip to a win. Like it's like pretty much always there is that you could just uh, end up Tom Double Do Blue Tom Double Blue Sonic Boom Sonic Boom like something. It, there's just there's always like something there, or and then people will be so focused on getting the perfect the wildfire combo that they won't take enough risk um, at a at sort of a a better window because the variance is higher and they there's like a bit of an unknown with what they could potentially hit. Yeah, I think this happens. Yeah, that's like a yeah, that's like a play piece. There's also this idea of just just evaluate your hand. You know, especially as life totals start to get a little bit lower. Maybe you're playing a deck that isn't a true 400% combo deck, but it has massive combo elements. Let's use like Reinar for instance. Okay, I'm trying to get to this in-game setup where I get to a Blood Rush Bellow plus uh, you know, Claw Claw Swing Big. It's like, okay, my opponent's on like 12, 13 life. I haven't found my swing big yet. Take a look at my hand here. Can I actually just kill them anyway? You know, like you have these kind of really focused, rigid ideas of what the combo should look like. But so often in, in Flesh and Blood, especially with combo decks, because of the way your cards work, you know, they, they have pitch value, defensive value. They have this ability to do other things. There's, there's probably other lines in there. So just taking a pause and having a look at it is really important. Um, yeah, definitely. I think that, like, I just want to riff off that and talk about one thing that the Bolton deck that was really interesting did was really interesting back in the days of Chain is that it would sometimes it would combo you and it would fatigue you after the combo because they gained so much life off Lumina. Mm-hmm. Um, and your low life total uh, put you in a position where you would die to carrying Huss damage. And I thought, like, that was just a really good example of that. Yeah, different way for the, uh, for the deck to win there. Yep, for sure, for Bolton to win. Uh, number four, no plan to sideboard or play around disruption. Now we talked about number one, don't dilute your deck, but you do want to have plans at minimum plans of how you want to play around disruption. You know, okay, I'm playing Kano into a deck that can have Oasis Respite or, you know, can have Steadfast out of a Guardian deck. What is my plan in that situation? You could be playing OTK Viscerai and it's like, okay, what if my plan- opponent plays Chains of Eminence on like the specific turn? Or, you know, that one might be a little bit corner case, but that happened to me at, at Nationals three times. Uh, it's like what is my plan <laughs> yeah exactly what is my plan in this situation it could just be very simple it's just like okay they played chains of eminence i'll block with my whole hand and i'll do it again next turn you know what i mean when the chains is gone it could be well i'm going to pitch stack uh tome plus two blues to make sure that i can add extra damage onto my combo i'm going to stack a wildfire at some point there's different ways that you can do this depending on what your combo deck is it's like bolton okay what am i going to do if there's a hypothermia how am i going to play around that so there's, there's different things you could do. Maybe I'm going to play Seal, Imperial Seal. You know what I'm saying? You know, what? maybe that's making my deck to play around Hypothermia. There's, there's different things you can do. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to sideboard cards in. It might. It might be that you want to bring in cards to stop the disruption of combo. But a lot of the time, it's just going to be having a game plan into what the disruption mm. looks like. Yeah, Chain did this freaking perfectly into Stag. It was like, how do I play out my Blood Deck cards in a way that exposes my opponent to the most damage possible before they play the Snag? And I actually trade up on value once they play the Snag. Like, you don't overcommit through the non-attack actions. It was, that was my favorite part about that deck, actually, was the interaction around playing around that specific hate card and that specific tech yeah. card and how you navigated it. Exactly. That's actually a fantastic example. Um, and was really fun to do as well. <laughs> I really enjoyed doing that. Uh the other one is like just like a card like Command and Conquer. Okay, if I have a, a protective card in my arsenal that I need for my combo, do I need to be playing around Command and Conquer? And how do I want to play around that card? Like every combat chain, a card that I'm thinking about is Command and Conquer. Do, am I always just keeping two cards? Can I afford to always keep two cards? Or do I just not play around this card? Like what is my plan? Whether it is to play around it or to not play around it, having a plan is important. So um, that's kind of it. I want to end out on the show, just talk about a few tips for building combos, kind of 
reiterating some of the talk about through the show, but there's just a few kind of notes here. Keep it clean, really focused. Like we said, uh, you know, don't dilute your deck, especially to start with. Start at the hard end of a combo scale and then work your way backwards. This is something Sasha does a lot. Did it with the Briar deck for PT2. He started with this ridiculous blossoming spell blade. Just like, it, it had it like Mark of deck. Lightning. It had like, it was just a pure combo deck and then worked his way every backwards. Deck. Yeah. You should have seen the freaking Kano deck in the beginning. It was literally just dog blues. Like, just for the Oracle. <laughs> Yeah, it had. It was just. It was literally just blue cars with like the Aether Wildfire, Blazing Aether, Lessons of Lava. Like no poke, nothing, and it just did. It it was terrible, but like it it showed that the combo was possible because it that was the only way for the deck to win. So it did technically do it every single time it won the game, and we really got to see the power of it. It was like okay, and we went from that super like super consistent. We did not dilute our deck. We understood the concept. It was like how do we walk this back so we have a deck that can actually poke the opponent down function. and do damage in between. So that we, yeah, function exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, make sure that what you're working on isn't naturally countered by the meta. You're probably going to waste a lot of time if you are. Maybe it'll be viable in the future, but just you know, some things are just naturally countered by the meta. Bolton and Icelander meta, for instance. Yeah, like playing yeah. Bolton, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, you know, K- Kano potentially in some metas that have been, you know, if there's a dash meta, that's, it makes me a lot more about playing something like Kano. Uh, maybe a, a, where everyone's playing Spellboy 2. Uh, be prepared to abandon stuff. If it's not naturally powerful, it's probably not worth pursuing any further. You know, you've probably already hit a brick wall there. Go and look at something else. Maybe there's a seed there and you can transplant that into something else. But if it's the sort of combination of cards you're looking at the core just naturally isn't powerful you know you're probably you probably are wasting your time i uh, think outside the box with cards that could help your plan there's a card in particular i think that often gets overlooked enchanting melody there's a card that can often help sort of combos do what they need to do get you through to turn cycles stop you from having damage dealt to you on key turns um this you know start think outside the box on some of the cards you could use look for abusable cards this is always the place to start cards that can break the mm-hmm. turns of the game um and in terms of that brendan where would i look right now well there's a lot of cards on the table i think you could look at wildfire and maybe even evolving something like our kano deck brainstorm and kano that's definitely abusable berserk you just talked about before with brute towering titan even potentially that's a card in guardian that always sits there tom of is definitely abusable uh arc knight ascendancy ninth blade looming doom and and just room chance in general mount heroic force of nature amulet of earth something we did at pt2 still there and still abusable luminar ascension of course blossoming spellblade is still a card that you can definitely abuse tri shot and three of a kind mm-hmm. definitely abusable and then hyperdriver and um, Nitro Mechanoid, not Hyperdriver, sorry, uh, High Octane and Nitro Mechanoid sort of OTK things that you can do. There's some some to start with. Yeah. And then there's uh, there's uh, the Icelander one, which is just ridiculous. The Frost Hex, <laughs> the, the, the combo, the, the, the effectively like Frost Hex. F- yep. five, to, yeah, five, five to six card combo that just exists in like the, 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 the best value deck that's ever been created just like it's one of the support blues it's yeah. so freaking good i i know yeah sorry it kind of just dawned on me we didn't mention that because the Icelander deck is like such a tempo right. deck and such a disruption deck but yeah. it just like it inherently has this like combo potential against people who try to yeah play slow against it great example though that that started people started with the, the high end of the spectrum right they started with this more yep. like frost hex and then it came back like you said and that that is a, a really good way to find powerful combos that can then go into decks and function like you talked about before with the Kano deck you know the Kano deck started as a out and out 100% combo no other way to win the game and then walk backwards down the spectrum a little bit to be the stick that had ways to push damage and and deal damage either side of the combo it, every deck did that actually that we played every deck started yep. out like probably a bit more combo blossoming spellblade and you know what we're doing it. with cr- 
Exactly. So the Blossoming Spellblade one, that was just like a Creepers deck that was using Briar and Blossoming Spellblade, do some funky stuff, but we walked that back, took the Blossoming combo out, kept the Creepers, um, the Chain deck. I mean, it was so all in on just, you know, comboing out, but it would, it lo- it would lose equity in, in the mirror and against other aggro decks. We had to walk that back, and it's like, what's the minimum amount of cards we can have to beat Fatigue, but also still be competitive against these other Chain decks that are uh, have much less blood debt than us? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. Well, that's going to be episode 87, our combo decks in Flesh and Blood. I really enjoyed having this conversation, Brendan, because it's something that we we do a lot, but we haven't really sort of broken down into a format for the podcast before. So I'd love to get feedback on what people think. What are some of the combos that you're looking at? Uh, what did you think of this kind of this podcast? And, you know, do you, did this help you understand combos maybe a bit more or things that we kind of look at? Uh, I do want to shout yeah. out that article I talked about earlier. It is over on Channel Fireball uh, by Matt Nass, and it's called... Five common mistakes players make when piloting combo decks. It is about Magic the Gathering, but so much of this, like we talked about today, used in Flesh and Blood, which I think is super cool. Uh, and go out there, enjoy building your combo decks. Brendan, I'm going to throw it over to you to uh, plug Fitness Challenge as well before we sign off for pod. Yeah, so y'all know the y'all know the deal. Awesome Marathon, February 19th. Come meet us there. Marathon available, but also a half marathon 5K. Just an excuse to hang out in person and organize around this um this community initiative so check it out uh i just wanted to say hayden that in the upcoming pro quest season i think i've i've locked in on a deck after we talked about it otk old him does it is calling to me so i will be i do think i might be playing that um, but yeah hope you all enjoyed uh hayden and i are both on Twitter, of course. I'm at Brendan APJ. Hayden is at, at Fien underscore Dale. Check out our YouTube page. Hayden did mention that the uh, new vlog went up there. Uh, I don't know if, if Paul Chien had the chlogs. I don't know what, we'd be, what we would be, the the plogs or something like that. But check it out. Let us know what you think. It's a bit of a different kind of content from what we're, u- we're, we're used to. But I hope you like it. Kind of shows the the player and personal side behind the, the world championship. Um, and finally, thank you to all the Arsenal Pass patrons. Your support helps us do what we do. And we will definitely have some spicy deck techs. And I think that Hayden's brewing up a little Kano, Volcano, Volcano video coming here, uh, coming here soon um, on Patreon. So check that out in the upcoming ProQuest season. We'll definitely be active on there with some some competitive lists, sideboard guides, and all that good stuff. All right, Brendan. Until the next episode, we'll see you in the next one. See y'all. <laughs>